Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and today I am joined by Stephanie Fu. Stephanie is a writer and radio producer whose work has been featured on This American Life, 99% Invisible, and Radiolab, among other shows. And she's the author of the truly wonderful book, What My Bones Know, A Memoir of Healing from Complex Trauma. Today's conversation with Stephanie focuses on her personal journey with complex PTSD, and I absolutely loved this conversation. We got into a ton of material related to how people can work with complex PTSD. We talked about the mental health care system in general and the challenges that people can have navigating it. Uh, We talked about Stephanie's personal history and how the things that happened to prior generations of her family cascaded down into her own experience. It was a really rich conversation. And one of the things that I really appreciated about it is that there were times where we were even lighthearted along the way. There There was laughter. We were having a good time. But even so, this is a conversation that focuses on trauma. And I really tried to avoid going into a lot of granularity around Stephanie's experiences. That was a deliberate choice to make this conversation as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. But if these topics are understandably ones that are sensitive to you or ones that you're vulnerable to, feel free to engage with this content. Hey, you don't really need my permission, but I'll give it to you anyways in whatever way is best for you. If that means you skip this episode, great. If that means that you listen to it a little bit at a time, that's great too. Do whatever works for you. And my hope with this is that people who have experienced complex PTSD or other forms of trauma get a lot out of the conversation, as I've gotten a lot personally out of Stephanie's wonderful book. So here's my conversation with Stephanie Fu. So Stephanie, thanks for doing this today. How are you? I'm good. I'm really grateful that you're having me on here. I'm grateful that you chose to take the time to do this because I really love your book. It's been very personally relevant for me as longtime listeners of the show will know. My partner, Elizabeth, is a new therapist and she has both complex PTSD and PMDD, which are two of the things that you talk about in the book. So it was all just really close to home for both of us and very personally relevant. That's awesome. I wrote this book really hoping that it would help one person with complex PTSD, so Mm. that it's resonated with her and so many is so wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder how it's been for you, because it's such a personal book. Writing a memoir is always going to be a personal process, of course, but you're really peeling back so much of your story in it, and so many of, frankly, the, the worst days of your life are included in that book, many of the best days as well, but many of the worst. And how's that been for you? I don't know. Like the reception that I've received for the book, the book itself, I couldn't be happier. I am very, very grateful that it's gotten received in the way that it has. And a lot of people say, oh, you're so courageous for putting your story out. Maybe it's the dissociation, but I'm not really clear on what I should have been afraid of. Maybe you can enlighten me. I don't know. (laughs) But it's been great sharing my story. Cool. For starters, I think that that's a totally legit answer. I don't think that it's one of those things where you're you're supposed to have felt a certain kind of way about it. I guess I like coming from from my perspective, 
just it's a very revealed piece of work. And I think about my own challenges with sharing, you know, one tenth of what you've shared in the book and that feeling like a very revealed process for me. So I guess there's a part of me that's just like, wow, how was that for you? But if the answer is just that it was like a helpful part of your process and it's been really cool to hear the feedback, that's great. Maybe I was too crazy to feel the fear I should have felt <laughs> mm. in revealing it. But I know the power of vulnerability. I know the power of first-person storytelling. And that was what was missing yeah. in this realm yeah. about complex PTSD. There was no first-person storytelling. There was nothing for people to feel like they could relate to, that they weren't alone in this journey. So I felt like I had to be as honest as I could be. I think that absolutely paid off. I think people feel that. Totally. No, I, I mean, I think that that's why the book works in the way that it does for so many people is because it's this great combination of really, I, I've just read a lot of stuff in this territory at this point for the podcast. You read a lot of books, a lot of people come in, and then just like our own journey with learning about complex PTSD as a partnership and dealing with it and, and all of that. And so the, the level of content, the level of rigor, like the way that you're able to talk about stuff like default mode network activation um, or all of these various like kind of technical things, but you do it in an extremely approachable way. And it's woven into a truly gripping personal story. And I know that that sounds like a movie review, but I, I beat it <laughs> honestly. Like it really keeps you going. And I think that you're right that it's the combination that really makes the whole thing work. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's my years of experience working at This American Life and Snap Judgment. Yeah. I just knew that like when you feed people medicine, you have to give them candy too. So <laughs> you get, if you're going to talk about the default mode network and like the amygdala, you have to also like give them some popcorn. Something to relate to. to eat while <laughs> something to relate to while they're processing all of that. Totally. And just to kind of talk about what we're talking about here for a minute. People who have listened to the show for a little while probably already are at least loosely familiar with what complex PTSD is. But if somebody's coming to this material for the first time, what distinguishes complex and conventional forms of PTSD? Yeah, the key is sort of duration. So for traditional PTSD, you can get that from a single traumatic incident. So you can get PTSD from a horrible car crash. Mm -hmm. Complex PTSD is kind of like if you were in that car crash every week for years and years of your life. And unless you're a horribly unlucky person, that generally means that somebody in your life, that people in your life that you were supposed to be able to trust, let you down and hurt you. And so you're going to develop different symptoms. You're going to need different therapies in order to heal from a wound that is so deep. I don't know if you used this word specifically in the book. I can't remember seeing it. But one of the things that you talked about is this idea of parentification, which mm. we've talked about on the show in the past, where essentially you had a relationship with your parents where you had to show up as a parent for them. And rather than having to receive the love and care that children are supposed to receive from their parents, including feeling like their parents are relatively secure and stable people, you had to come through and support them in a variety of different ways, including by managing their emotions. And that's like a classic feature of complex PTSD for a lot of people, and it's something that can commonly lead to it. Yeah, absolutely. While all of this was going on, while you were entering those first stages of 
interacting with your personal history, receiving a diagnosis, you were an extremely accomplished person. You are an extremely accomplished person. You were a big part of producing one of the, I think it's fair to say, like most visible pieces of media in the world in your mid-20s. And from the outside, I think that it would be easy to look at that and think this person has really got it all together. While that was going on, what was happening inside of you that led you to engage with this process and want to seek help? Yeah, I think work had always been my coping method for dealing with all of my trauma. Mm -hmm. And that can be sort of dangerous because if you're drinking really heavily or doing a ton of drugs, then people are generally like, maybe you should stop that. But if you work all the time, people are generally like, oh, go you, you're doing great. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a decade of my life or more. And then at a certain point, just sort of burnt out, I think, covering the 2016-2017 election presidency was really hard. There was a lot of covering like racism in this country. As a person of color, that wasn't easy. And so I think it all just came to a boiling point where I was having panic attacks all the time, freaking out, and couldn't work, which was my main coping mechanism. So then I was actually forced to inquire, what is this? Why am I feeling this way? How do I fix this? And that's when my therapist diagnosed me with complex PTSD. Yeah, yeah. And so you had a socially acceptable coping mechanism, basically. More than that, it was like a lauded coping mechanism. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way to put it. Totally. You were complimented for the behavior that you were doing to like deal with your suffering, which that's better than the alternative in some ways. But also it probably meant that it took a little longer for you to take those steps to getting the help that it turned out that you needed. Yeah, absolutely. And there were certain points at which I was going to the doctor and getting all these tests done and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. It's because I was working too much. <laughs> I took a vacation and all the symptoms went away. <laughs> so yeah, not super healthy. Yeah. And one of the things that I remember you talking about in the book is this feeling of intense anxiety that you described as the dread. Mm -hmm. Would you mind letting people know what that felt like or looked like in practice? It just felt like something terrible was going to happen or I was doing something wrong or I wasn't good enough. If I went out and I hung out with friends, I would come home and just think, I must have said something terrible. They must not like me. If I had a pitch turned down in a meeting, it would be like, this is the end of, they don't want me here. I'm the dumbest person on the staff. And so I think that is one of the reasons why I worked so much is because I thought I have to prove my worth at every given moment. Yeah, something that stood out to me throughout the book is how relational all of the problem solving ended up being mm. for you. And one of the things you later talk about with the clinician that you worked with, Dr. Hom, is how complex PTSD is a relational injury for people. And that means that it has to be eventually healed inside of relationship, that you essentially practice relating in a healthier way to yourself and to other people. Mm -hmm. What were some of the behaviors at this point in time, if we're talking about with the dread and in the throes of the complex PTSD experience that were just automatic for you? Maybe some of the assumptions that you were making or things that you just did that were kind of getting in the way of your ability to relate to other people? Yeah, I think that common feelings for me and for many people with complex PTSD were just like, I am not lovable. I am not good enough. 
you don't think I'm smart, you don't think mm-hmm. I'm good. Mm-hmm. And that really made it hard to trust others. Trust is a big issue in complex PTSD, and it made it hard to repair with others when there were issues in a relationship, a fight, whatever. It was sort of lash out or run away, just, oh, all of my feelings have been validated. You did hate me after all. Goodbye forever, <laughs> mm, yeah. which is not great for maintaining long-term relationships. Yeah. Not great in the workplace. Yeah. Totally. And just talking about long-term relationships, a major feature in the book, a major character is your husband. And early on in that relationship, were there things that the two of you were bumping into behaviorally that were just like causing a lot of challenges that you had to work with? Early on, not so much because I was just hiding everything about who I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lived that life. Just being like, I am totally <laughs> sane. Just look at how sane yeah. I am. And then going home and being like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But eventually the crazy came out and I couldn't hide it forever. Mm. And I had to tell him, mm-hmm. you know, all mm-hmm. of my issues. And he was very accepting and remains very accepting. And there's, of course, still issues there was issues then, there are issues now. Yeah. <laughs> but we try to repair them. We always try to repair them. Was that, was like the presence of one person who was really open to supporting you and accepting you for, for who you were a key part of this whole thing? I, you talk a lot in the book about just like the value of having the strong friend group that you had and how helpful that was for you. Yeah, I think it's not just him. It is my friend group and him. They have really kept me grounded and it's really important. They don't love me for my success or my output or how much I make or anything like that. It's very interesting how completely uninterested in anything I do my husband is professionally. They love me for who I am, you know, and they make that very clear. And having a couple of my best friends I've had since I was nine and I've messed up with them so many times at this point and they keep coming back and supporting me and having these relationships is really grounding and allows me to think, okay, maybe I'm not the worst person in the world. If I've been able to like keep my best friend since I was nine, maybe I'm not the worst person in the world. If I'm able to have this person who sees me at my absolute worst and Mm -hmm. still tells me he loves me. Maybe it's okay to make mistakes. Maybe that's human. Well, I really love that for for starters, in part because it's been very similar to my journey with Elizabeth and our kind of adventures together, where I think that a big thing for her was the first time that she just had a full, I don't even know the right way to put it, like like a full episode, I guess, like a full emotional collapse around it. And having the experience of another person not freaking out at her or walking away from her, but just being able to be with her was very, very reparative for her. Because just inherently, if you're somebody who has that kind of a traumatic history, you haven't really had a lot of experiences of that most of the time. So it's new, it's foreign. And it's kind of this like beautiful interpersonal teaching moment where like we can be in this together. Yeah, totally. Me and him had an episode yesterday where, Mm. but like I think before in previous relationships and with him, Sometimes when I get triggered, I can really shut down, wall off, push away, get very angry, dissociate. And instead, like I think it's helpful 
yesterday I was able to verbalize like, this is what I'm really afraid of. I'm really afraid of mm -hmm. you judging me. I'm really afraid of you not accepting me for who I am. And being able to say those things is really difficult. And I was like crying the whole time. <laughs> but it's also <laughs> very reparative because yeah. the other person is able to say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be here for you. And then you're able to feel safer and make that repair feel held. Something that you talk about a little bit later in the book, and Dr. Ham was your psychologist, your therapist, the person that you worked with for an extended period of time. And your work with him is super, super interesting. And one of the things that he emphasized that also I've seen in other, just other people's writing around this kind of material is that people who have a trauma history have often been taught the importance of emotional regulation. You know, regulate yourself, regulate yourself, regulate yourself. Like, mm -hmm. don't have the collapse. If you have the collapse, it's your job to deal with it and just figure out how to how to come to a, a stable place inside of yourself, whatever that means for a person. But alongside that, what gets lost is the importance of reconnection with other people, of like connection alongside of it, the relationality of it. And I thought that was just such a cool part of the book and, and such a personally useful part of it for me. It was like a real light bulb moment. Mm, yeah. I mean, vulnerability is really important. Sometimes you need to collapse with people. Sometimes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, I feel like I am not really close to someone unless I've like cried with them. <laughs> mm. Both of us, both of us crying together. <laughs> <laughs> some, just, some good mutual crying. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Having a very full range of emotions is not always a bad thing and shouldn't always be pathologized. So just kind of moonwalking back to when you went through the process of receiving a diagnosis, because that's a major step for many people. It's something we've done podcast episodes on, how to relate to that process. What is that actually like? We've sort of seen that people tend to go one of two ways. People either go, hey, it's so great that I finally have an explanation for this set of symptomology that I'm experiencing. And on the other hand, people can swing into shame, self-recrimination, I'm such a bad person. And often there's a lot of messy middle where it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Mm -hmm. uh, how is that like for you? And how's your relationship with being a person who has complex PTSD changed over time? Oh, at first I was full column B. I was like, oh, this makes me, this makes mm. me broken. This makes me evil. Yeah, totally. I was really obsessed with the phrase hurt people, hurt people, because I was like, does this mean that all I do is hurt people. And I wouldn't say that I'm thrilled about having complex. I don't think anyone's ever like <laughs> so happy that I have complex PTSD, <laughs> but I accept it. I've, I have a relationship with it. I feel like it's one of the many relationships that I have in my life that I just have to navigate all the time, like everything else. And just there's days when I appreciate it. Sometimes I'm like appreciating it for the hustle or the dissociation. Like during the pandemic, I really appreciated it because I was able to dissociate my way through like all of New York City kind of falling apart and it was pretty much okay. Weirdly, very, very disturbingly okay. Yeah. And then there's days where I freak out about something small and I'm like, wow, really, really wish that I did not live in constant fear all the time. That would be awesome. So I've learned to manage it when it does come up and try and utilize its power when I can. It's, it's kind of like that Hulk thing that I wrote about yeah. in the book where complex PTSD is like being the Incredible Hulk 
in which when you are triggered, you hulk out, you're sort of very violent, you're not very smart. <laughs> you speak in like two word sentences with no adverbs or anything in the middle. But you're also not necessarily a bad guy. Like you can use the Hulk for good. You can use the Hulk to help your friends. You can use the Hulk to help those in need. And it's you have to figure out when you're going to use the Hulk for good and when you really need to shut the Hulk down. Yeah, yeah. And it's so, I mean, so brutal how we how we interact with these things societally, right? Because you you have a person who has a set of strengths and, and vulnerabilities, right? And one of the things that I really like about how you talk about complex PTSD is you emphasize some of the strengths, which a lot of people with CPTSD just never see. They never see this as, a, as the possibility of it having any benefits associated with it at all or any ways that it might make up a person more capable in certain kinds of situations. The way that you were talking about navigating New York during a pandemic, all of a sudden you're like, welcome to my home, everybody. This is this is what, what I'm great at, essentially, because you come from that dysregulated environment, so you have a lot of experience. Yeah, I think that that was one of the things that was really missing from all mm. of the books that I was reading about complex PTSD. I remember reading The Body Keeps the Score, and there was literally a line in it that was like, oh, People who have complex PTSD do have advantages. And then they didn't, it didn't say what the so advantages that were. Yeah. That was, it. it ended there. I was like, <laughs> what the, f when, what are you, like, I don't, un don't you think we're going to read this? Don't sure, you think it yeah, would be helpful yeah. for us to know? And so that was really one of the things that when I researched complex PTSD, I was like, what are the advantages I need to tell the world? Because it became my mission at a certain point. What are the advantages? Outside of navigating New York during a pandemic, which, you know, it, it's it's a corner case. It was a very important case, but it's a corner case. What are some of the ways in which you've actually found these resources or maybe a sense of just like your resilience in general to be helpful for you? I mean, I wouldn't be where I wouldn't have had all that success if I didn't have that obsessive workaholism. Totally fair. And there's absolutely bad things to it. And there were good things to it. Like I, I'm here now talking to you. I had the opportunity to write that book. And there were things about complex PTSD that actually made me a really good radio producer and made me really good at specific parts of my job. Like there's an aspect of working in a big radio show where you do show producing, which is which means that you have to handle a million moving pieces. You have to always have backups. Like in case a story falls through at the last minute, 48 hours before it happens, you have to have a backup. You have to make sure that everybody is on deadline. You're checking in constantly with people saying like, do you have it? Do you have it? Do you have mm -hmm. it? And that is very much a feature of complex PTSD is always making sure is everything safe? Do I have a backup to everything? Is everything safe? Is everybody on task? Is everyone doing exactly the thing that they should be doing that <laughs> makes this a very safe environment? And so there's totally ways to monetize having complex PTSD. Um, <laughs> and I think also one of the things that is best about it for me now is that I think it makes me very empathetic. I think that it makes it easier for me to really understand where people are coming from who have very different backgrounds from me and sort of give the best pep talks and be there for people, know exactly where they're coming from. And I also think healing from complex PTSD 
has also allowed me to interestingly shut doors with people who have trauma but are unwilling to work on it and just be like, okay, boundaries. I don't need you in my life. I don't need that in my life. I, I do think it makes a person unbelievably sensitive in sometimes very useful ways, extremely useful ways, like sensitive to the little movements of sociality in a room, sensitive to the micro expressions in somebody's face. And, you know, it's possible to overinterpret. You want to be a little careful with that sensitivity. But man, does it make you an, an attuned divining rod, if you will, for like what's going on in other people, because you have to have that level of awareness when you're growing up in environments that are less than perfectly safe. Right. Are you an empath or are you just traumatized? <laughs> Sometimes a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, right? Why not, why yeah. not both? <laughs> True. We'll be right back to the show in just a minute. But first, a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science. Lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DSO-1 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS-01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash beingwell and use code 25BEINGWELL to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash beingwell, code 25BEINGWELL. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk. That's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. That's up, L-I-F-T, desk.com slash beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein, and particularly more healthy protein, into my diet, and IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text BEINGWELL to 64000. 
One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix Sticks, and four IQ Joe Sticks. And now, our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text BEINGWELL to 64000. Get your discount. Text BEINGWELL to 64000. That's B-E-I-N-G-W-E-L-L to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash being well. So I would love I'd love to ask you about some of the things that you did during this process and what was like actually really helpful for you, because I know that there are people who are going to be listening to this who have their own things that they would like to work on. And particularly, you did the whole the whole thing, the whole kid and caboodle. You, yeah. you, you talk about EMDR and IFS and all of your work with Dr. Hum and just like the whole thing. Throughout that process, were there a few moments that were like white light moments for you where you just went, oh, and had a moment of insight that really changed things? Yeah, there were a lot. Sort of the most important first step was learning some bodily regulation. And so being able to do some restorative yoga and sort of recognizing what exactly it feels like to be in your body and not be dissociated from your body and to recognize like the pleasure of sensorily being at peace and the pleasure that comes with like deep breathing was really key because I think the first step when you get triggered is try and just get your body a little bit regulated so that you can slow down your thoughts. And restorative yoga was the first thing that sort of broke that open for me. And restorative yoga is not vigorous yoga. It's very relaxing and they cover you in blankets and it's very nice. So I think that was very helpful. Mm -hmm. I think that the second big aha moments was then battling my dissociation, sort of trying to figure out when I was first diagnosed, everything sort of just felt bad all the time and I didn't know why. And I had to figure out why do I feel bad about this thing today? What is this trigger? And there was a lot that I did with that. I like got a Fitbit that I was paying attention to, my heart rate all the time. I was like exercising a lot and eating differently. And but I think the one of the really helpful things was EMDR, which at least sort of 
made me less dissociated about my past because it allows you to sort of be in a moment of trauma and see it with sort of objective clarity and without all of the layers of dissociation and guilt and justification and everything. And sort of being able to live in my trauma and see how brutal it was, was really helpful to understand like, no, it makes sense that this has a daily impact on my life. Yeah. So, and I wouldn't say that any of these things is like a cure-all. I would say it's like a step-by-step thing. I needed everything, you know? And then one of the big last steps was the relational aspect, just sort of learning with Dr. Hom how my trauma manifests. We did Google Docs therapy where recorded all of our sessions and then transcribed them, put them into Google Docs, and then went and did a really close reading of every single one of our conversations and tried to figure out what exactly was happening in those conversations and was really able to see myself dissociate to see myself not listen, to see myself self-loathe and understand how better to be in conversation and be present with another human being. Because yeah, I think a lot of people think, oh, you go off into a mountaintop and you meditate and you that's how you heal from trauma. And like it does feel when you're on that mountaintop, like you're, everything is good because that's no because nobody's talking to you. And as soon as you get in relationship again, you're gonna get triggered again. Totally. I was listening to an Instagram live you did with Dr. Hom actually, and he had a line that I thought was a, just a perfect summary of this whole thing. It's not about knowing certain things; it's about experiencing life in a different way with another person, which really just encapsulated a lot of that relational aspect. I think. Yeah, that's so true. We don't really learn how to be by memorizing facts. We learn how to be by living. Yeah, and you come across as, or at least come across to me, I should say, because that's my own content, right? As like a pretty top-down, logical, rational, get-things-done kind of person. If you think about like Google Docs therapy as an approach, that's a pretty rigorous top-down approach, right? You're really doing the close reading, you're editing (laughs) at the margins, you're doing the producer thing, right? And at the same time, what you flagged as like, oh, this first thing that, that got you into relationship with with your content in a way or that really opened the door was this restorative yoga practice, which is such a body-based, like bottom-up kind of way into it. And I just think that marriage of the two is really interesting. Yeah, all three of those, I would say, were not things that my rational brain thought would work. Like, I didn't think that your restorative yoga would function in that way. I didn't I didn't really believe in EMDR. It's, it's a very woo-woo, crazy sort of idea that you like whatever, you watch a hand going back and forth or you listen to beeps and then you're going to be able to like be a child again. But I do think that like integrating the subconscious and the body and and experiencing these things is integral to the healing because so much of the trigger, so much of what's going on is not rational. It's very visceral and autonomic. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that and like I'm I'm a pretty rationalist, top-down, cognitive kind of person. That's that's very much my lane and my brand. And as I've learned more about the personal growth world and the mental health world, I think I've relaxed some of that because there are just these things that 
we don't really know how they work exactly, to be honest. And, and we're not sure why some people are benefited and some people aren't. But for some populations of people with something like EMDR, it's just radically helpful. Yeah. I mean, I used to poo-poo things like energy healing. But my friends, I have friends who are like, you know, this helps me get through my week. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know. There's things I don't know. I mean, yeah. if, it, yeah. if it helps you calm your body, then do it. Totally. And using that as an example, there's a relational aspect to it at the very least, right? Mm. There's like another person who's standing there next to you. Maybe Caring there's some you. gentle touch going on. Yeah, totally. And and like that, I think that that exchange of caring mm -hmm. is, is such a huge part of like, I, you know, set aside whatever else might be going on, but like just that aspect of it alone could totally be enough for a person to reconnect with themselves or feel safe with other people. Absolutely. I think, you know, my mother-in-law, we used to go to acupuncture and she got a lot out of it. And I think that, I don't know if it was the acupuncture that helped her. I think part of it is that she just never let anyone care for her unless she was going to pay for them to do it. <laughs> and it's like the one time where she was cared for by another person. So, we, yeah. I, you know, we all just really encouraged that. I love that. And was that a difficult process for you to like receive care in that way? I think it still can be a really difficult process. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm better at it because I've gotten better at giving care to myself too. Mm. Sometimes I still feel guilty or like, do I need to buy you like a face after this or something? <laughs> <laughs> do I need to compensate you for your yeah. caring of me? Yeah, yeah. totally, totally. But I, I try and keep a balance of mm -hmm. the giving and the receiving. And now that I'm working less, I also have a lot more to give. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's nice. You know, I've got all like the trite metaphors or whatever about it, but there's just this funny thing that happens where you're a attuned person who's really thoughtful about giving effort and the coping mechanism is doing a lot of work or like really showing up for other people, really grinding yourself down. And there's a way in which that then gets in the way of what is actually really helpful for people or what can be really helpful for people, which is that giving and receiving of care, right? Like you're so burnt out that now you don't have anything to like give to other people and you feel kind of uncomfortable if they give something to you because you feel like you're not giving to them. And it just becomes this kind of like vicious cycle throughout the whole thing. I think that can be really hard with people with complex PTSD because they weren't given to as children. There was always a cost. There was never unconditional love. It was like, I will love you if you do XYZ mm. for me. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's been really helpful being part of Joey, my husband's family, which is much more unconditional loving and specifically his siblings, where I really feel like I can ask for things from them, like come over and bring me dinner, you know, and I've put in my time with them certainly as well. And they never make me feel like a burden for any of that. So it's really enriching to have some relationships mm. that feel that way. Yeah. And one of my favorite parts of the book is the journey that you go on essentially with yourself. That self-relationship from starting the book with even in the style in which you were writing it with talking about a lot of intense self-criticism and just a heavy, heavy internalized abuse essentially. And over time, getting toward the end of the book, the last couple of chapters with these just really beautiful pieces of writing around around self-love and the way that relationships actually work in terms of this exchange of care. And, you know, if I can't like myself, it's hard for other people to relate to me in that way. And I'm 
I'm sure that that was a long and slow process. It is for many people at least. But along the way, were there moments that stand out to you in terms of that changing of relationship that you had with yourself where you just went, wow, like maybe I don't need to do this anymore. I could do this in a different kind of way. Yeah. I mean, there were there were lots of really helpful things. Having a gratitude journal was really helpful for that. Just recognizing the ways that I have not just being writing down things that I was grateful for, but also writing things down that I did to benefit the world and my community and my friends and sort of recognizing my impact, um, sitting with it and actually appreciating praise instead of just having it wash over me. Meditation was really helpful. Psychedelics, really helpful. Yeah, Psychedelics really taught me how to unconditionally self-love or that it was possible at least under the influence of mushrooms. <laughs> totally. And then being like, well, let me try and figure out how to get back to that place. Yeah. By the way, that is like the perfect way to put it, I think. We, we've done episodes on psychedelics in the past on the podcast and had uh, Dr. Albert Garcia Romero, who is one of the people in the Johns Hopkins program that is currently like studying psilocybin and all of that. And it can really give you an insight to a place that it mm. is possible for your brain to go. Yes, yeah. your brain is doing it with assistance, but it's still your brain. It's like all right. the structures are still the same. Yeah. So just being like, oh, this is a thing a person can feel can yeah. be just like incredibly helpful. Yeah. The whole time I'm on streams, I'm really like, is my brain doing this itself or is this God? Or like it has to be my brain, you know, trying to figure that out. But yeah, I would say that's definitely a really helpful step. And then, like I said, relationship. I think a lot of people think, oh, if you really want other people to love you, you have to love yourself. I don't think that's true. Like, you have to have other people love you in order to love yourself. Yeah, that's how it yeah, works. Yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> totally, totally. We're, we're community-oriented creatures. We live in tribe. Like, you can't just be in a, a room in total isolation thinking I'm the best with no outside yeah. feedback. <laughs> um, so I think really trying to find ways to have relationships, to nourish them, to appreciate mm -hmm. them, to be grateful in them, to enjoy them was really key. Yeah. One of the things that is a huge part of any relationship is the ability to deal with things when they go sideways, right? Because like everything's all great when everybody wants the same thing and everyone's on the same page, but that's not life. That's not the way it works. And for me, there's just a two-page little section in the book that gets to what I think that Dr. Hom called like two-way repair, something mm -hmm. like that versus one directional repair that for me just like totally blew my mind. It was such a great articulation of this. And um, I was wondering if you could share that because I think it would be really helpful for people. Yeah, I think that when you grow up having complex PTSD, you think that repair is either you demand apology or you apologize and prostrate yourself on the floor and cry and say, like, please forgive me. And that's it. And usually conflict is not that simple. Usually both people have misread each other in some way. And you sort of need to state your needs as well as give people what they need. And so I think having empathy for where somebody is at is really critical while asking like, hey, can you change your behavior, meet this boundary, whatever. And also being like, what can I do to help 
you meet that boundary? You know, is there something you need from me? I mean, like I have ghosted so many fewer people since yeah. in the past couple of years. It's more I've asked for more. I have confronted people more and been more open to people confronting me. It's really hard when people confront me and ask me to change still. But I think, again, before I would just run away and be like, you don't love me anymore. And now it's, I have that instinct and then I have mm -hmm. to tell myself, okay, no, they're asking for something from you, show up. Was that when you first started bumping into that content or trying to do that in a different sort of way, I have to imagine that it was pretty scary. I don't know if that's true or not, you tell me, but how did you start to like dip your toe into that pool? And was it hard? Because I just think that this is such a huge thing for so many people. I think it was hard, but it was made easier with, I mean, Dr. Hom was like really, really like guiding me through it or like holding my mm. hand. Because mm -hmm. first it was, well, the easiest way to do it was with him because he was so responsive to that were forceful about like, let's make the two-way repair. He was modeling it really well for me because we would see all of these little breaks in the Google Doc, ones that I wasn't even attuned to. I didn't think were a big deal. And he would be like, no, you weren't listening to me here. Look at this. Or, you know, like you changed the subject on me. You disappeared. Or here I'm talking to you in like a really passive aggressive way. And it was... On paper, it was really easy because I was used to being edited on paper on a Google Doc. Mm -hmm. That was like the one way I was used to receiving lots and lots of criticism. Yeah, and so yeah. on paper, I was like, okay, okay, I understand. I'll change that or whatever. And then it, the tricky thing is like taking it off the page and making mm -hmm. it real life. Yeah. Yeah. Moving it into the real world. Totally. Yeah. But that was a really helpful first step. And I, I just want to flag that you found a way that worked for you. This context of it being on the page in an editorial context <laughs> where you were comfortable receiving feedback, you're like, yeah, I've done this. I am good at this. I can handle this was probably really helpful. And and I just want to flag to people like that might not be your process. You might not be that person. But hey, there's probably some version of that out there that's going to work for you or that Absolutely. maybe you would find a little bit more approachable. Yeah. Absolutely. I had to make my own therapy that <laughs> eventually that would work for me in this way. Yeah. But like maybe there's some way in which you love receiving feedback. Like maybe somebody has to be holding you <laughs> when mm, you receive yeah, the feedback. Totally. Like, like I literally asked for that the other day. I was like, can you like hug me while you tell me what's <laughs> you, what you need me to change? And maybe that's what you need. You know, it could go a million different ways, but I think sometimes it's messed up, actually. It's deeply messed up that we have a system that exists this way that we have to fight for our own healing in this way, where I you have to get creative, where I've had to get creative because there should be enough resources and culturally competent resources, especially to help people who aren't psychologically literate, who are first-generation immigrants, who are coming from backgrounds where therapy is not accepted. So there should be healing practices that like incorporate traditional practices because mm, maybe mm -hmm. the comfort place for you is in the temple. Yeah, that's a way in. Totally. Maybe the comfort place for you is with all your Santeria stuff set up, but we're not going to get to that place unless 
the mental health industry and therapists are a lot more creative and progressive, which right now they're not. Killer segue, because this is exactly what I was hoping to talk with you about next. You were in a really strong position. You're a very educated person. You had a really kick-ass job. You were extremely successful. You're very smart. And you ran into the mental health care system. And there are aspects of it in the book where it just sounds like the worst thing ever to navigate. As you know, I know from some personal experience, just kind of being in this space for a little while. And I just think that it's really telling that somebody who had as much competency as you do still was looking at it like, what the heck do I do here? Like, how do I make this work for me? Totally. I mean, right now, having written the book, having like done all the research, having published this, having like literally dozens and dozens of therapists write me saying, thank you, you've whatever we teach you in our classes. Totally. I needed to find a therapist because I couldn't afford Dr. Hom anymore on a weekly basis. I need somebody more affordable because he's expensive, very expensive. And the only way I could think of to find a therapist, I like put out the call to a lot of therapist people I knew. Their friends were full up or were still charging like $350 a session. And so I literally had to just post on Instagram. That was the only way I knew. And most people don't have that resource to like post to like 17,000 people and ask for a therapist. And I'm still going through all of these people and really struggling to find somebody who is affordable and who checks all my boxes. And, you know, nobody takes insurance. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the insurers haven't updated their rates and I don't even know how long. And that's part of the puzzle too. It's just over 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, They up the rates for cardiac surgeons. Cardiac surgeons are still getting paid to the market. Therapists are not. It's a huge problem. Yeah. And also part of it that I just want to flag real quick is that the overwhelming majority of therapists are white, which is something that you talk Mm -hmm. about in the book. And the overwhelming majority of therapists are female. And so if you're if you're not looking for a white female presenting person, then you're kind of SOL for starters. Yeah. I mean, my community growing up is majority mm-hmm. minority. And part of me is really mad that our parents did not get the help that they needed. Part of me is also like, you know, this is bigger than them. Like there's a huge Vietnamese community where I grew up. How many Vietnamese speaking therapists were there? You know what I mean? How many culturally attuned Vietnamese speaking therapists were there. How many, yeah, black male therapists are there. And if you're speaking to someone who doesn't know your language, either literally or like societally, Mm, like they don't mm -hmm. come from the social class where you're from, they don't understand your level of privilege or not, like you're going to struggle with your relationship with them. It's not great. It's not great out there. Yeah, it's not great. And layered on top of that whole thing, another thing you talk about in the book that we've talked about on the podcast is that complex PTSD is not even a recognized diagnosis right now. In terms of, to do the one-second version of this, there's this book called The DSM. We talk about it on the pod a lot. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's kind of like the psychiatric Bible, and it is not a diagnosis, which means that insurance can't get really involved. They have to give you a different kind of diagnosis that they are allowed to treat you for under insurance. Right, and do the treatments of that 
and do the things that treat depression also treat complex PTSD? Probably not. Like I know that one thing that I would like to have is IFS. I know that CBT does not work for me. CBT is absolutely useless. I've done years of CBT and then gotten like 10% better. You know what I mean? And you go down your provider list by your insurance and it's all CBT, 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 because maybe Mm -hmm. that works for anxiety. Maybe that works for depression. It's not going to work for complex PTSD. So that pretty much screws you. Yeah, you're just, you're stuck. And one of the things with CBT that people find is that it's a great, it's a great intervention for for some people, for some things, to be clear. Mm-hmm. It's very research validated. Like it's, you know, no knock on CBT, but it's also great for insurance because it's very codified. You have an eight-week course and it's very studied inside of that specific format with these specific interventions. You do homework, you have check marks along the way, you know, it's very procedural. And it's also extremely top-down, kind of like we were talking about before. And it's very intellectual. Very intellectual, yeah. <laughs> if you're not going to, the first kind of person who's going to benefit from intellectualizing your trauma, you're not going to benefit from it. Top-down, What's the where's the somatic stuff? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's right there, same page, totally. And it, it's just really, really hard for people. And I wish that we could like go on this podcast and be like, hey, and here are all the things that you can do to get around it. But the system just sucks right now and it needs to be massively reformed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big criticism for my book. People are always like, how can we replicate your healing? You had so much more privilege. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you except that I'm out here trying to fight for things to change because they still suck for me <laughs> and mm. I know they suck for everyone else. And all I felt like I could do with the book was provide a roadmap to things that I really found worked and didn't work and try and provide some shortcuts for people and some agency for them to be able to go into a therapist's office, for example, and say, this is what I want and point to the book and say, like, do this for me. Yeah, I mean, I just I wish that I wish that people had access to more, better, more affordable resources that were delivered in a a more culturally competent way, mm-hmm. just as you were talking about is a major piece of this whole thing, I think, because one of the big themes of your book is about cycles of trauma, cycles of abuse, the ways in which these things can be handed down through the generations. And you're talking in your own experience about a population of people, a lot of first-generation immigrants, people coming from societies that where they experienced just unbelievably intense experiences of of trauma or otherwise like fleeing war and how like th- there's no way that that can't impact a person right and so the idea that we're we're trying to thoughtfully bring in populations of people and then not provide them the resources to integrate or heal from those experiences is you know that's really rough we think that immigrants come to this country they live out the american dream they buy a house they get money they assimilate and everything is okay and whatever they left is just erased. And that is just not true Mm -hmm. as evidenced by the immigrant community where I came from, where lots of our parents had escaped very difficult things like the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, and the Khmer Rouge, which is a literal genocide. And even if we did seem like really high-performing, okay kids on the outside, there was really dark stuff happening at home. Our parents weren't given the support that they needed to heal. It just wasn't available to them in our communities. 
a lot of times they were isolated, so they weren't able to get the community support and the cultural support at Temple or with family or whatever that they might have even had back in their home countries. And immigration itself is a trauma. And so they pass that on to us. Genetically, they pass it on to us through, you mm. know, we're learning more about epigenetics, but also through their parenting of us because they did not know how to cope with their pain. And so they passed it on to us by, as you talked about, forcing us to parentify, to be parentified. I think that it is possible to heal these communities. I've done some reporting for Invisibilia, this episode called Therapy Ghostbusters, all about like how one health center and specifically a couple of therapists were able to really heal big parts of the Khmer community in San Jose by doing culturally appropriate care, culturally competent care, like Bhopal, Bhopal Penn, a hero therapist, um, was able to gain the trust of a population that had never gone to therapy and didn't believe in therapy mm -hmm. by tricking them into being into therapy because he <laughs> went and made friends with them and like what acted as their translator and their social worker for two years before ever asking what happened to you. And at that point, they were able to open up to a friend, a brother, a colleague, in the way that they wouldn't to a therapist who you're going to their stuffy office once a week. I mean, it's if you think about it, going to a therapist is actually like the most weird, unnatural human experience where you go to some totally. total stranger's like doctor's office and you tell them the worst things that happen to you for like an hour every week for 45 minutes and then they cut you off and then it's very strange. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Oh, sorry. We're out of time. Got to move on to the next one. No, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a very unnatural process. You're totally right. And there's a million different ways that you can make that more natural. There's a million different ways that other cultures have made it more natural, like through horticultural therapy, oh, yeah. through literally sweat lodges in Native American communities, through, again, going to temple, going to sewing groups, going to women's groups, you know, playing music together. There's a million different ways that <laughs> we can enter into learning these same the same language that I've you and I have talked about today. These same concepts, introducing them in a less weird way. Yeah, yeah. And if we actually care about providing equitable mental health treatment to everyone in this country, and not just to white, educated, fancy people, then we have to learn how to reach out in those different ways. One of the things that you end the book with, and it really certainly was a bit of a tearjerker for me personally, but just a, a really lovely reflection about your relationship with your family and then what you would like your relationship with a, at the time, theoretical future child to look like. And you recently posted on Instagram that you're going to be a mother. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah, 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 fingers crossed. Hopefully, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, hopefully. Yeah. And, I, like, how's that been for you? It was really scary at first. And then I just got a lot of support through this community that I've somehow built by writing this book, which is really nice. All of these other women came out and were writing, I have complex PTSD. I have a 25-year-old kid now who loves me and is very well balanced. And I was like, oh, great. That's that's the dream. <laughs> so that was that provided a lot of hope. 
And I, I feel like I've built a pretty good support system and I've been really, really trying to heal myself. I don't think that like, I think I was waiting to have a kid until I was like totally healed. And, but at a certain point there came to be a, like, I'm never gonna be, compl- I don't know if anybody is like, I don't know if there's truly like gonna be this moment where, I don't know, something bad happens and I don't react to it at all. And I'm like, that's the time I got, gotta have a kid now. <laughs> But how it worked out, I think one of the important things that this whole journey taught me is how to take care of myself, is how to like calm my inner child, is how to at least be there for it. And when I first found out I was pregnant, that inner child was really, really freaking out. Like, who's going to take care of me? How are you going to do this? And I think I just really needed to turn to that inner child and say, like, no matter what happens with this kid, I will always take care of you too. And then Honestly, I, I, I have felt like this sort of peace ever since I sort of made that pact with myself. Like, we're going to do this together. <laughs> yeah, that's really like a beautiful reflection there, Stephanie. I mean, I, I love that idea of turning toward those more vulnerable parts of yourself and just delivering it some soothing as you go through something that is understandably like very complex emotionally. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be a challenge. We'll figure it out. I don't know. We'll see. That's the next book. You know, we'll figure it out. Hey, I'm I'm looking forward to it. So as we come to the end here, is there anything else that you would like people to know about? Any work of yours that's currently ongoing where people can find you? Any of that good stuff? I don't know. Just like kind of working on um, gestating. But um, (laughs) you can find me. (laughs) You can find me at foofoofoo on Instagram or I'm on the radio on Twitter. I'm mostly on Instagram nowadays. And that's where I'm posting about weird motherhood thoughts and what's coming next. Love that. And I don't know if it's still up, but I remember at one point, I think that you had a link tree with resources for people. Yeah. Yeah, that I remember looking through and going, wow, this is a really great resource. Oh, good. Yeah. 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 Thank you. If you go to my Instagram, there's a link tree or you just go to my website, stephaniefu.me. All the resources are there. Awesome. Stephanie, thanks so much for doing this with me today. I I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Really, this was a fun conversation. There's more laughter than there usually is in these PTSD talks. So appreciate that. I really appreciated that Stephanie took the time to come on the podcast and talk about her experience with complex PTSD. And we started the conversation with the inherent vulnerability that comes from producing a book like Stephanie's book. And again, the name of that book is What My Bones Know, A Memoir of Healing from Complex Trauma. And it was really interesting how she talked about it not necessarily feeling to her like this incredibly vulnerable act, but instead just a a part of the process, something that she knew how to do. Hey, maybe she chalked it up to the dissociation a little bit, but it was something that ultimately she felt comfortable with. And that got us into a conversation about the ways in which vulnerability can help a person recover from something like complex PTSD. People who have complex PTSD often grew up, often but not always, grew up in environments that were chaotic or traumatic or otherwise unsafe. And what happens when you're in an unsafe environment? Well, of course, you can't be safely vulnerable in it. And it's just such a theme in mental health in general 
that the experiences that we couldn't have early on or the experiences that are difficult for us in general are ultimately such a big part of what ends up helping us down the road. So what does that reconnecting or relearning that which was pushed away look like for somebody with complex PTSD? Well, people with CPTSD often disassociate pretty heavily. Understandably, they were going through experiences that were just too much for a little kid to bear. And so they had to find some kind of a coping mechanism that allowed them to survive those situations emotionally. And so you just develop a lot of separation, maybe from your physical body, if you experienced some physical abuse, or your emotional body, if you experienced emotional abuse. And then you need to learn how to reconnect with that body. For Stephanie, one of the practices that was really helpful for her was restorative yoga, which is just this very gentle form of yoga that's really about reconnecting with your interior. Another example of this could be what repair looks like for a person. People with complex PTSD tend to lean into unidirectional repair. So what this means is that they're either demanding from another person or they're going to them totally belly up, groveling, will you please take me back? There's not a sense of mutuality in the repair process because that wasn't something that was available or that wasn't something that was taught when the person was younger. There's not this balance of, I'm going to hold these boundaries, and also I can be warm and loving toward you or understanding of where you're coming from in these other ways. And that's something that needs to be, again, learned over time. One of the things about the conversation that I really appreciated was how Stephanie emphasized some of the strengths that can be present for people who have complex PTSD. An example of this that she gave was, yes, it was a coping mechanism, But wow, she was a really hard worker for a really long period of time. And that's part of what enabled her to be so successful. In the same way, people with complex PTSD can be extremely emotionally sensitive and emotionally attuned. And this can really allow them to be deeply empathic toward other people. But there's a balance to that. You don't want to over-infer. You don't want to... Uh, read too much in to a passing movement of an expression over a person's face. Like, that could be a very exhausting way to go through the world. And so you see this tension, this push-pull, between the things that need to be relearned, the strengths that you can take from your experiences, and then putting it all into its appropriate context. Stephanie talks a lot in the book about the broader social and historical context of her experiences and how these traumas can get passed down from one generation to the next, both very practically, even genetically inside of our bodies through epigenetic transfer, but also behaviorally, the the ways in which we learn to cope with a certain kind of circumstance that maybe doesn't exist anymore in truth, but it still lives on in us. And that broader sense of history, your personal history, your cultural history, is one of the reasons that I found it so poignant that Stephanie herself is pregnant right now and, you know, hopefully will be a mom. And toward the end of the book, there's this really lovely reflection about the relationship that you would like to have with a future child. And there is a unique opportunity that can be present for people who come from traumatic backgrounds, really painful backgrounds, families with a really rough history. And it's the opportunity to be a pattern breaker, to leave something behind in your relationship with those who come after you that is materially different from what came before. 
And I'm sorry if this is a little bit corny at the end here or, or feels a little a little treacly. I don't mean it that way. But really, if, if you're somebody who's listening to this and you yourself have complex PTSD or come from a traumatic background or really resonate with any of the things that we were talking about during this conversation, if you're here, if you're listening to this, it means that you care about what you leave behind. It means that you care about not just your own happiness, but the impact that we all have on other people and how we can make things a little bit better than the way that they were before. And there's just something in that that I find really personally inspiring and that I that I find inspiring in people who are willing to do that level of inner work, who are willing to go into the basement of the mind and see what they find there, because that can be incredibly difficult, incredibly scary. The system makes it even harder than it needs to be. And for a long time, there just weren't a lot of resources. There still aren't a lot of resources for people who are trying to go through that process. And so if you are somebody who has done that, I just really appreciate you. And thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And the ways in which that work will affect not just you, but so many other people in ways large and small through time. Again, Stephanie's book is What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. I really couldn't recommend it more highly. I think it's an absolutely fantastic book. I've been reading it over the last couple of months, and it's on my short list of favorite books that I've read for the podcast, and so I would really recommend checking it out. If you've been enjoying the show, you can find us on YouTube and Instagram and Patreon and all of the places you would expect to find a podcast. And hey, if you haven't done it already, we'd really appreciate it. If you just take a moment to subscribe to the show, maybe leave a rating, a positive review. It really helps other people find us. And the biggest way that you could support the show is probably just by telling a friend about it, which I really appreciate. So until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.